Welcome to Spies of London, The Westminster Walk, Part 3. I left you outside artillery mansions, but primed you for a walk towards St James's Park and the Foreign Office. I did mention that in recent years, GCHQ have moved out of this area. They used to have an office in Palmer Street. However, it's impossible to locate on Google Maps. It should be labelled former GCHQ or something to make my life easier. And I can't remember which side of the street it's on. And it takes you quite a bit out of your way. So I will be looking up the Palmer Street office of GCHQ in more detail in a future episode of the regular Spies of London podcast. So no Palmer Street today. It's not an exciting building in any way. We're going to walk instead from artillery mansions across Caxton Street, through the gardens and to the entranceway of St Ermin's Hotel. St Ermin's is really cool. It's where I filmed a special episode of Points of View to tie in with BBC's Little Drummer Girl, the John le Carré series, which was really good, starring Florence Pugh. St Ermin's is a boutique hotel. It's not massive, but it is very grand. It looks fabulous when it's got the Christmas decorations on. Formerly used as an office for MI6 and other associated spy agencies, as Artillery Mansions was. So you can see that MI6 now is growing out of its Broadway office, which you'll see in a second. It's grown out of the hotel, it's grown out of other offices around here, it's grown out of Artillery Mansions. And we're starting to see the build-up of pressure, which led them to move to Century House in Lambeth, and eventually on to the Vauxhall Cross building, which you saw earlier in this walk. So the organisations of MI6 and MI5 are getting grander and larger every year. But St Ermin's is special to me, it's special to many Cold War followers. It has a division bell in there, which means that an MP who is sitting in the bar knows when the votes are about to happen in Parliament and can scurry off to Westminster to vote. And it's a really nice hotel. It's not expensive by London standards. It's not huge. It's tucked out of the way. You might have found it difficult to find if you don't have your maps in your hand. But St Ermin's is well worth a visit and a drink in the bar, if not a night or two, to explore Cold War London. Retrace your steps away from St Ermin's Hotel and you will head around to St James's Park Tube Station. Just outside the station, you can stop and look up at the Broadway buildings. I believe it's number 50, now a Regis office. Just like Leckenfield House, it's a normal office building now, but it used to be the HQ of MI6 in John le Carre's day, and it's where John le Carre wrote some of his books, I believe, including The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Completely different prospect to the current Vauxhall Cross building. Much smaller, more compact, dingy dark corridors, bricks and stone. But I really like this building. I love the roof. I like the fact that it's right next to the tube, but nobody knew who worked here. The sign was the one that said Minimax Fire Extinguisher Company of Ryslip. But for me, for any John le Carre fan, to think of him writing his most famous works in this building just before he quit the service and then got the reputation and success that he needed to concentrate on his writing and to follow that up with Tinker Taylor is quite a special location for us. St James's Park Tube is also a special location in many ways as the tube station used by the spies if they weren't catching the bus to this area. If you follow the road around the corner, you will soon see the Ministry of Justice building, which used to be the Home Office before the split under John Reid. And if you keep walking around the corner, you'll eventually come to Queen Anne's Gate. Houses in this street, the townhouses, are moving back into private residences now and they cost upwards of 10 or £20 million pounds each. 
but not so long ago they were used as offices, partly because they were so expensive, including the National Trust on one corner, and indeed, the townhouse of Mansfield Cummings and MI6 behind you. So if you look for number 21, you will find Smith Cummings' house, the early offices of MI6, and apparently a tunnel in the basement into the main MI6 building in the background, so Smith Cumming could get in and out of work very easily at all hours of the day and night without being accosted or spotted. The best story I can think of about Smith Cumming, who was the original C in many ways and started the tradition of signing letters with the letter C in green fountain pen ink, the best story about Smith Cummings is about his wooden leg. He was an absolute daring-do hero and he lost his leg in another incident which I can never quite remember. But anyway, he had a wooden leg and he used to shock people at interviews, new recruits, with what he could do with this leg. He had a trouser over it so it looked, if he was seated, like a normal leg. And he would ask the young recruits what they would do, what they would be prepared to do for their country. Would you do this? He would say with grand flourish as he stabbed his leg with a compass or a sharp pen or even a knife. And the young boys, as they were, would flinch, not knowing that he was stabbing it into his wooden prosthetic leg. So Smith Cumming was a very serious man, a very successful man, but not without a sense of humour. We can then make our way further along Queen Anne's Gate to 16 to 18, which was an office used by the British Army, and where Baden-Powell, Lord Baden-Powell, and the founder of the Boy Scouting movement used to work. Baden-Powell was an interesting chap. He had a career in the military and I think realised the importance of intelligence and observation and careful watching. And he was a, an artist and a photographer himself as well. And a lot of spies back then would use the guise of a tourist because it gave you an excuse for carrying a camera. But he liked to do sketching as well and he went to Dalmatia, which is now in Croatia, and copied down aspects of a fortress there in great detail but on every second page he would draw pictures of insects and butterflies and this kind of thing so anybody glancing through his book on the front of each page would see pictures of insects and butterflies and on the other side if they were not looking really closely they'd miss the pictures of the fortresses so Baden-Powell really had a a good war uh, an interesting career in the military before he founded the Boy Scout movement, which was effectively a, a training ground for the military in many ways. And any boys who liked the Scouts could then be recruited into the military later on if they wanted to continue that as a career. I was in the Scouts. A lot of boys in the 80s and 70s were. I think it it is still going, of course, but perhaps not quite as centrally in the lives of British youths today as they were back then. So we're heading now towards the pub. I think it's called the Two Chairman. And just past the, the pub, you will see cockpit steps down. And apparently there was a cockpit, a, an area for fighting cocks where people could gamble on them back in the day. But down cockpit steps, across the road, into St. James's Park, and take a hard right. So you are sort of following the road, but it's nicer to walk just inside the park. And you are heading towards the British Foreign Office. You're also heading towards the British Treasury, but that's not as interesting for our purposes. So outside the British Foreign Office is the official end for the walk. But it allows me to talk about the Act of Parliament that almost started this walk when we talked about MI6 being a purpose-built building that opened in 1994 at a time when MI6 became officially a government department and became officially legally represented. Part of that Act of Parliament, Section 7, 
is given over to the process by which MI6 agents can break the laws of foreign countries overseas. And those two things are important. They are not allowed to break British laws and they are not allowed to break laws in Britain. But they can absolve themselves of prosecution in Britain at least using Section 7. However, there is a detailed process behind this and essentially what happens is that MI6 have to put together a detailed document showing what laws they need to break, why, when, who, give all the justifications. This document is then sent to the Foreign Secretary who then signs it off. But it's very specific and some people try to show that this Section 7 means that licence to kill is, is a thing in British law, which it isn't. Licence to kill, as used by Ian Fleming and James Bond, suggests that the holder of this pass has a free card which allows them to kill anybody they like, whenever they like, wherever they like. This is not the case. There is no licence to kill and Section 7 is not giving you that right. However, because the rules and the protocol is still shrouded in secrecy and is now the subject of a court case to try and expose it, it does lead to these wild imaginings. And in fact, Jack Straw did sign off some nefarious activities to do with extraordinary rendition, where British Secret Service agents abducted certain other individuals, I believe Syrians, for them to be interrogated by the CIA and waterboarded and all those nasty things which have now been discredited. But it was MI6 that helped that to happen, even though it was illegal. And it is strongly believed that that was signed off by the then Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw. This did get to court, or at least it nearly got to court, before, surprise, surprise, the British government settled for a very large amount of money and the case disappeared. So we do not know specifically that Section 7 was used, but we are pretty sure that MI6 did abduct people. Whether they have ever killed people is a moot point. Surely it will come out in future if, it, if they have. Of course, the shooting of Irish dissidents by MI6 on Gibraltar is a big case that has still not been fully understood and resolved, I don't think. But the idea that an individual can be given a carte blanche licence to kill is nonsense. As this current court case goes through, we will see more perhaps about the process by which this is done and whether killing is explicitly ruled out or not, whether that is left open-ended, we don't know. But certainly Section 7 in the Act, which I will link to in the show notes, is very short, very brief, and has recently been amended to allow GCHQ staff to break laws as well. And there are sections in there which relate to electronic eavesdropping and the ability to break laws to do with that, even though they might be carried out on British soil, which is quite interesting. It's one thing to break laws abroad, perhaps. You may disagree. It's a different thing to break laws here, remotely, using computers, and then try and claim immunity from prosecution. But that's what Section 7 allows. It's very short, but very tantalising and very interesting. And I always stop the walk there because the Foreign Office is the British state office which runs MI6 effectively, or at least has oversight of MI6, in the same way that the Home Office has oversight over MI5. That distinction itself can cause friction. The idea of a James Bond licence to kill needs squashing, but there is still that tantalising possibility that MI6 agents could, with the permission of the government, kill foreign terrorists, foreign dissidents, foreign enemies. And on that grand note, we end the walk. I end it here because the Foreign Office is so beautiful and grand and it's a short walk to Westminster Tube, but you may also like to take a walk along Horse Guards towards the Mall just for a quick look 
at the police memorial, especially as the British policeman was stabbed recently outside Westminster Palace and his name has now been added to the memorial. But it commemorates all the British police officers through the years who have been killed on active duty and is a worthwhile remembrance that although MI6 might seem distant, detached, remote, exotic, exciting and lethal, there is, much closer to the front line, a large police force, the Metropolitan Police and other police forces too, protecting us from danger on a daily basis, putting their own lives at risk. And that is the serious, not not message, but the serious aspect to this. It may be a lot of fun, it may be a tourist activity for us, but ultimately MI6, MI5, GCHQ and the police are there to protect British people and British commercial and national interest. And I have to remind myself of that when I'm buried in the archives looking at what might or might not have happened in 1960 in Berlin, for example. But it is true and it's worth remembering. And I will leave you here. You can walk up to Trafalgar Square if you're at the police memorial or you can walk over to Westminster Tube Station if you're still at the Foreign Office. I hope you've enjoyed this walk. I really enjoy it because it's got such dramatic sights. But it is the longest walk and some people find that a little bit too long, a little bit too quick. I do like to try and rush between the points to get more time to talk. So at least with these virtual tours, you can now go at your own pace. Perhaps you're outside the UK and can't get here at the moment and wish to just listen, which is great too. But I will put as much into the show notes and onto the blogs as I can to show you the pictures and the sights that you will miss if you are not able to make it to London this year. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again soon on the podcast. You can also sign up using your email address for newsletters on the website, www.spiesoflondon.uk.